So, this week, um, one night this week, what night was it, Jillian? Thursday night? Thursday night. Jillian and I went on a date. And uh, she's my daughter, and she's nine years old, and we had a special night out. And we went to see The Lion King. How many people here have seen The Lion King? Yeah, most of you. What a great story. Although, we didn't just see The Lion King. We saw it. We saw it in 3D. <laughs> you all do not look as flat as you did a moment ago. So we saw The Lion King. The Lion King, as you know, y'all are looking at me funny. Okay. <laughs> is a story about a young lion. He is uh, the son of the king. Uh, what's, anybody know his name? Simba. Simba. Okay. Simba is the son of a king. And he is going to be the king one day when his, when his father dies. Whether some tragic events happen, I'm not going to tell you the whole story. Some tragic events happen in Simba's life and he runs away. He runs across the desert and he finds two friends. Do you remember their, do you remember their names? Pumba, who is a, I guess, a warthog or some sort of pig. And Timon, who is a meerkat. And they live a life of ease. Other than Jillian, who remembers their philosophy? Hakuna Matata. No worries. That's right. That's right. They live a life of ease. Uh, Simba lives there, grows up there. He doesn't worry about being a king. He doesn't even worry about being a lion. He doesn't even worry about being a carnivore. He eats grubs and bugs and, yeah, nasty stuff. <laughs> but there comes a moment in the movie, in the story. It's a great story in the sense of all great stories. Or a story of fall and redemption. And it's a great moment in the story when the, uh, the baboon, who remembers his name? Rafiki. Rafiki. That's right. Remember, the the baboon comes, challenges Simba to return. And at that point, Simba sees a vision of his father, Mufasa, the king, who is dead. But he sees a vision of Mufasa. And Mufasa, in this uh, great voice, I wish I had the voice. Who is it, like James Earl Jones or something like that? In this great voice, he says... Uh, they, don't, they don't help too much. Okay. He says, Simba, you have forgotten who you are, and so have forgotten me. Simba says, how can I go back? I'm not who I used to be. Mufasa says, remember who you are. You are my son and the one true king. Remember who you are. And it kind of fades away. Remember. Remember. <laughs> right? As we look at Paul's message to the church in Corinth here in chapter 6, I keep feeling like these are reading glasses. Um, That's Paul's message to the Corinthians. Remember who you are. Let me get kind of theological here for just a minute. For Paul, who you are, your identity, determines what you ought to do. And who you are going to be in the future, your destiny, determines 
who you are right now. We'll get to that in a minute. I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. Let's review. We've been in 1 Corinthians for several months now. Pastor Aubrey, as he's been speaking, has said on several occasions, the church exists for two reasons. The church exists to worship God, and the church exists to be a witness to God's kingdom. And it's that second piece that really comes into play here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Throughout, throughout 1 Corinthians, Paul has been addressing some issues in the Corinthian church. And in the passage this morning, Paul has heard, it was reported to him, that several members of the church in Corinth had been suing one another. They'd taken one another to court um, and, and fighting over, well, we don't know much about it. We don't know the details. We don't know who was suing whom. Um, we don't know if it was a large amount of money at issue, if it was business dealings at issue. But apparently, someone was ripping someone else off. There was, in verse, I think it's verse 8, says there was defrauding and wronging. We can assume that the Corinthian readers who received this letter knew the situation that Paul was talking about. It's been interesting preparing for the sermon. Uh, a number of the commentators read this passage and seem to focus on the injustice in the Roman courts. Um, judges open to bribes. A strong uh, systemic basis in favor of those with power, with higher social or political or economic status. Um, they focus on the fact that going to court was very expensive and beyond the reach of, of most people. What's interesting to me as a, as a lawyer is that some of these commentators seem to think that it's hard for modern Americans or Westerners to imagine a justice system like this. <laughs> but the truth is, while there, there are some differences in degree, what did Solomon say? There's nothing new under the sun. The kingdom of this world will always favor those in power, will always favor those with status. And going to court is still an expensive proposition. So Paul isn't talking about injustice in this passage. He's not saying the Corinthians should avoid lawsuits because they won't get justice in the courts. It's also interesting that Paul doesn't spend much time here chastising the bad guy in the story. The bad guy in the story is the man who defrauded his brother. And it seems to me that's the person we, we should start with. But that's not what Paul's focusing on here either. Paul aims both barrels at the Corinthian church. He's getting on them for their failure to be the church. Paul's getting after the church because they've forgotten who they are. Just as the Corinthians failed to discipline the incestuous man in chapter 5, they are failing to take responsibility here in chapter 6 for settling their own disputes. When Ed was reading the passage this morning, did, did you hear it? It, was, it, it wasn't just a, a straightforward passage. Um, it was, if you really listen to it and look at it carefully, it's dripping with horror, with sarcasm, with indignation and scolding. It doesn't feel like he's arguing a theological point. He's exasperated. With them. Back in chapter 4, Paul was very careful to write, I don't write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as small children. 
He doesn't say that here in chapter 6. He says, I say this to shame you. Throughout these verses, they start off with, don't you know? Don't you know? You idiots. Don't you know? Because it's obvious to him. They should know better. So for Paul, who we are determines what we ought to do. And what we are going to be in the future determines who we are right now. Our existence as God's future kingdom people absolutely defines who we are and what we are to do in this present age. So, in this passage, Paul urges the Corinthians to remember. To remember who you are. And he gives them three things to think about, to consider, in helping them understand why he's so upset that they're suing one another. So I'm going to give you three things that we're to remember. And this will be kind of the, the gimmick to help us remember. Remember who you are. You are a community of capable judges. I was in court in Roanoke this week. If you've ever been in a courtroom, you walk in the, usually the back door of the courtroom, and there's the public gallery, and then there's what we call the bar that runs across the courtroom. And only certain people can go in front of the bar. And all the people in front of the bar have a, have a role to play in the proceedings. There's the lawyers, there's the court clerk, there's the court reporter, sometimes there's probation officers, there's a bailiff or several bailiffs, and of course there's the judge. When I was in court in Roanoke this week, there was a guy sitting up in the, the left corner in the front of the courtroom. And I couldn't figure out who he was. We had a two, two and a half hour hearing. And he was there the whole time just scribbling notes, watching what was going on. Um, and I, I, was, I didn't know who he was. Uh, that was on Wednesday. On Friday, I, I think it was, I got a notice that a new judge has been appointed in Roanoke. Um, his name is Robert Ballou. And they had a picture of him. And lo and behold... That was the guy that was sitting up in the corner. And he doesn't get sworn in till October 3rd. So he's not a judge till October 3rd. But he knows that someday he's going to be a judge. And that affects what he's doing in the weeks to come. He's trying to learn. He's trying to observe and watch and see what it is that he needs to be, to be looking for. Paul says in uh, verse 2, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And in verse 3 he says, Do you not know that we are to judge angels? Paul writes this in a very matter-of-fact way. Don't you know this? Don't you know that someday in the future we are going to be judges? Where's he getting this from? The Old Testament writers, uh, when they looked forward to the coming of the Messiah the coming of God's kingdom, there was clearly an expectation that God's people will participate in ruling and in judging in what they call the last days. You could hear that in the passage that Ben read for us this morning. Um, looking forward to the coming of the Most High, the Messiah, the judgment was given to the saints. 
Paul is referencing this prophecy in a whole line of, of Jewish thought uh, in this regard. This idea that God's people will rule with him was developed in, in post-biblical uh, Jewish writings before Christ. And it was picked up in early Christian teaching. On several occasions we see Jesus in Matthew uh, chapter 19, for example, telling his disciples that when he establishes his kingdom and sits on his throne, you who have followed me will also be ruling and judging the nations with me. In the book of Jude and in Revelation, we see authority to rule and to judge being shared by Christ and his followers. Now, the details of what this looks like, I mean, the stuff we want to know, right? What does it mean to be ruling with Christ? What does it mean to be judging in the last days? It's not explained here by Paul. Not here and not, not elsewhere in the New Testament. He simply asserts the fact that we are a community full of future judges, future rulers. And because of this, judging these disputes in Corinth about temporal affairs should be no problem for those destined to serve in such a high office. He says, if we're going to rule the world, if we're going to judge angels, don't you think we're able now to judge petty lawsuits? I think verse 5 is great. Paul really lays it on thick. And he says, can it be that, uh, can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between your brothers? Remember, as Pastor Aubrey's been speaking, he's talked about how the Corinthian church is really enamored with wisdom. And so he's, he's really kind of hitting him between the eyes there. We should not go out and ask someone else, someone who we are going to judge someday, for his judgment. For Paul, this is unthinkable. Why is this unthinkable? Remember the second purpose of the church, to be a witness to God's kingdom? Few things will impair the witness of the church, like broken relationships. Paul wants the Corinthian church to be a light in a dark world, to be living out the values of the kingdom rather than the values of the current age, to be concerned more about the reputation and the unity of the church than a few dollars. That two people claiming the name of Christ are fighting in court for Paul is embarrassing and shameful. And it is shameful, isn't it? We read the newspapers about churches suing one another over property, airing their theological differences in front of people who are just rolling their eyes at it. It is shameful. And no one wins, Paul says. We'll get to that in a minute. So, why is Paul so upset that members are suing one another? Remember who you are. We are a community that can judge ourselves in a God-honoring way that does not bring shame on the name of Christ. But Paul goes on. Remember who you are. You are a family held together by love. In verses 5 through 8, Paul uses the word brother uh, four times. At that time and in that culture, it was really inappropriate for family members to sue one another. Families were expected to handle their disputes among themselves. And Paul is saying, 
You are a family. As we read this passage, of course, we can't help but thinking of the words of Christ in a whole number of contexts, including the the passage we, we read in the gospel this morning. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him, take your, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. And do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. The basic principle of Christianity and of Christ is love. Self-sacrificing love. We are to be a community that is characterized by love. Jesus said that outsiders will know that we are his followers by what? By the love we have for one another. I want to be clear here. Paul isn't just talking about pastors going to court or churches suing churches or denominations suing churches. Certainly that's included here. But what he's talking about is Christians, lay people like us, who have real disagreements, who have really been harmed financially and otherwise, by other Christians. This is not just about things that go on here in the church building or in church property. This is about business arrangements going bad, rights that have been violated, trust that has been broken. Paul says, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. No matter who wins, no matter who gets the verdict from the judge, everyone loses. There are no winners. The church is called to model love and forgiveness to a watching world. Christians fighting in public is a sign that Christians are no different than anyone else. When we air our dirty laundry before the world, we shame the name of Christ. Paul calls upon the church to take care of these disputes in-house, arbitrating disputes among members in a wise and God-honoring way. Then he goes a step further. He says, if your church leadership is not prepared to step in and handle this, or even worse, if the other party is not prepared to come together and work this out in the church, what do you do? You let it go. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Do you understand what he's saying? He's saying let it go. Take the hit. Real victory might be obtained by choosing to be wronged, by allowing yourself to be cheated. You might win if you took your brother to court. He wronged you. He cheated you. He violated your rights. Forgive him. Forgive him like Jesus forgave those who nailed him to the cross. Forgive him like Jesus has forgiven you. Life in the kingdom always looks like Jesus on the cross. Forgiving when you have the opportunity to vindicate your rights looks like Jesus on the cross. When we endure undeserved injury with grace, we follow the example of Christ. Now this is what Paul is usually talking about when he's talking about suffering. Suffering is only in the present. We inherit our reward later. 
And that's what brings us to the third thing that Paul wants the Corinthians to remember. Remember who you are. You are a community of radically changed people. In the last few verses of today's reading, Paul says, still launching with, don't you know? He says, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Paul then goes through a list of ten or so people that he's talking about. The sexually immoral, immoral, the greedy, the swindlers, and so forth. Now, this is not intended to be like a complete list of all types of sinners. This is a list that relates to the issues that Paul is talking about in chapters 5 last week, chapter 6 this week, and the rest of chapter 6 next week. So that's why these people are on this list. So I'll leave most of those to Aubrey. Some people, I think, read this list and conclude that God has drafted an arbitrary list of rules, and if you break those rules, you can't enter the kingdom of God. But that's not at all why this list is in this passage. It's not what this list is doing here. There are certain people whose lives are characterized by certain all-consuming sins. The swindler isn't somebody who just swindles one time. His life is characterized by swindling. The greedy, as it's used here, is not somebody who does one greedy thing. His life is characterized by greediness. Paul is thinking about persistent rebellion against God. Just as persistence or perseverance, I guess, in obedience is a sign that you have the Spirit, perseverance in sin is a sign that you don't. Indeed, these persons whose lives are characterized by sin are incompatible with the kingdom of God. If they were given the opportunity to experience God's rule, to experience God's kingdom, they wouldn't like it. But the point, the point of this list at this point in the passage is this, what Paul says. He says, and this is what some of you were. He gives the list and he says in verse 11, but this is what some of you were. You are changed. You are no longer greedy. So stop being greedy. You are no longer a swindler. So stop living like you are. In doing this, Paul offers both a threat and the flip side of the coin, an encouragement. Here's the threat. Those who continue to act like the wicked are in grave danger of forfeiting their inheritance in the kingdom of God. By persisting in the same behavior as those already destined for judgment, they are placing themselves in very real danger of experiencing that same judgment. Here's the other side of the coin, the encouragement. If you repent, and if you act like the changed person you are, if your life is marked not by greed, but by self-sacrificing love to your brother, you will inherit the kingdom of God. Which, by the way, is far greater than any amount you might have won in your lawsuit. Paul wants the Corinthians to remember who they are. They are a changed people. And to become who they are. But he knows that they are a changed people only because of the work of Christ. If you look at verse 11, it says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified. 
In the Greek, the wording is clear and stresses that these things were done to them, not by them, but to them by the work of God. These three metaphors, washing, sanctification, justification, describe the same reality, that is, conversion, washing. The picture here is baptism, which we're going to see here in a few minutes, where we're cleansed and forgiven. Sanctification, we are a people set apart for God. Justification, we are placed in right relation to God. Paul is convinced that these affirmations are true about the Corinthians. Even though some of their present actions seem to contradict this new identity that God has given them in Christ. Who you are determines what you ought to do. And who you will be in the future determines who you are now. We, the church at Corinth, the church here, we are a community of capable judges. We are a family held together by love. And we are, whether we feel it or not, a community of radically changed people. So what do we do with lawsuits? Is Paul saying uh, we can never go to court, that we can never use the legal system? That's how some people read this passage. And in fact, that's what we're always tempted to do, right? Make it some sort of categorical rule. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6 says that we can never use the legal system. That's not what Paul's saying at all. Paul is not condemning the government. He's not condemning secular courts. In fact, there's times when he asserted his rights as a Roman in Roman courts to defend himself. In in Romans uh, 13, Paul talks about a right view of government and being subject to government and the the ability of the government to administer criminal law. Lawsuits in this passage were a symptom of what Paul wanted to address. He wanted them to understand who they are and because of who they are, how they should act. So lawsuits. Paul brings up the issue. Aubrey asked the lawyer to speak on this passage. So I guess I'm required to talk about lawsuits for a few minutes. There are times when it's appropriate for Christians to go to court. I think of a, a perfect example of this is Rick Clay Provide. Um, he's not here this morning. But, but as you all know, he was in a pretty severe motorcycle accident a couple years ago. Um, he's had nine surgeries, some, some incredible number of surgeries. Um, and the way our system works is that, um, that money ultimately is going to be paid by an insurance company. But the way the game is played, the insurance company won't pay until they absolutely have to. And you can only force an insurance company to pay that kind of money with a lawsuit. And the insurance company knows, and if Rick were here today, I think he could testify to this, that it is a long and grueling experience. And that most people, before it's all over, give up and accept less money just to end it. So that's the way the game is played. And it's not at all wrong for a Christian to do what they need to do in that situation to get their bills paid. Paul is not addressing um, litigation that seeks justice for those who've been disenfranchised. 
Paul isn't talking here about suing corporations. He's not talking about suing the government. He's not even talking about suing non-Christians. That's really not the issue in this passage. But let's talk about litigation. Civil and criminal against Christians, against non-Christians. For God's kingdom people, how do you approach this? I think we have to ask this question. Will the name of Christ be promoted by this litigation? Or flip side of that coin, will the name of Christ be harmed by this litigation? There was no doubt in Paul's mind that the civil litigation between the Christians in Corinth was detrimental to the name of Christ. As a lawyer, I have the great opportunity to have this conversation with clients, and I've done it on many occasions. A Christian comes in to see me, he um, has a case, and he, he, and he wants to sue um, a brother. I end up usually through several sessions of, of examining the situation with them, and it's really a heart question. Can you file and prosecute this lawsuit while loving your brother? Now, I can imagine situations where the answer is yes. You're doing it for reasons that are loving. Okay? You can do it in a way that's loving. But many, many times, I have to end up agreeing with Paul, where the answer in a particular situation is no. Does forgiving my brother include laying down my legal right to sue him? Once again, every situation is different. Every person is different. But that's something that, that I walk through with people um, in my office. It's a very difficult situation, and it really isn't good for business. Um, <laughs> but I believe it's a conversation that Christian lawyers and Christian church leaders need to be having with their clients and their members. What makes it hard is the person sitting in my office has been wronged. She's in a business partnership with a Christian where she trusted this, this brother or sister with everything. And they've wronged her. Maybe it's a, a man who feels violated because his valuable property was destroyed by a Christian brother who borrowed it without asking. Maybe the neighbor's garage is several feet across the property line. Okay? There, there are real injuries. And as Americans, the culture we swim in, we have rights. And the justice system is there to vindicate our rights. But see, that sort of talk belongs to this present age. It doesn't belong to the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is about self-sacrifice. The kingdom of God always looks like Jesus on the cross. So what do we do? With disagreements, injuries, potential lawsuits. Because there will be disagreements, injuries, and potential lawsuits among Christians. Just a couple thoughts. Church leaders need to take the lead in this area. Because it's so contrary to our individualistic, materialistic, rights-focused culture. We need to teach members to think this way ahead of time. While times are good, before these things happen. We need to step forward and challenge members who have been injured. 
as well as the members who've caused an injury. Church leaders need to figure out how to bring both parties to the table to work for a resolution that both parties will honor and ultimately work for reconciliation and restoration, if that's possible, in a God-honoring way. And it also goes beyond church leaders within a single local church. I've had a number of situations where Christians in our community are um, in this sort of uh, dispute, and they belong to different local churches. Church leaders in different churches need to be prepared to work together, to bring their members together, to find resolution together without resorting to the courts. I think it's important, too, to point out that Paul is not telling us to hide or cover up or ignore these sorts of disputes. They need to be addressed and resolved. We don't just sweep it under the rug. Reconciliation and restoration are important for the unity and health of the church. And they cannot be, uh, it cannot be achieved if we ignore problems. All right, so remember who you are, Simba. Remember, remember. You are a community of capable judges. You are a family held together by love. You are a community of radically changed people. These three ideas planted in our hearts don't just apply to lawsuits. The art of living faithfully as Christian community is to live imaginatively and practically on the basis of the truth of who we are. We are God's kingdom people. Let's pray.